I haven't really written in a couple of days. Uh, it's not a good thing and it's not a bad thing. It's just a thing. And I, it's not because I'm not wanting to do it. Uh, I, to be honest, I've been kind of busy. Uh, Reba's got a, a cherry eye, so I got to fucking bring her into the vet on Friday. That's been a whole other thing. Thank God I got pet insurance. But, um, yeah, no, so uh, I talked to Janet Fitch, and she was awesome. I, I screwed up because at that point when I did that interview, um, that podcast, I hadn't signed up yet for the actual, like, legit Zoom. So I only got talked for, for like, 35 minutes. But uh, we're going to have her back on. Um, but she said something that was you know stuck with me I can't kind of get it out of my head and it was um she got it from a, an agent she had sent something to it might have been a short story I forget it might have been a novel whatever um and the agent said to her something along the lines of like your sentences need more or I'm butchering it. I, I'm paraphrasing. I kind of forget. But it's something along the lines of like breaking down, you know, to the sentence. You have to be that, you know, critical. You got it. So it didn't necessarily overwhelm me, but it made me start thinking. And I remember when I was recording, um, I was playing this band called Pasole. And it was like a mariachi surf rock band, dope band. Cool. Great. Um, and when we were recording this EP... We it was you know it wasn't a sloppy band but you know we could have been tighter, um, since I wasn't like the chief songwriter of the band I was just the lead guitarist it was never my say to kind of you know influence how the music would sound I kind of just added the sweet notes on top, but when we were recording that specific record I remember like just obsessing over every single note of my guitar solo. In any song that we played. Now, when I played them live, obviously, you know, it, you know that goes out the wind. I, I, I'm, you know, I, I'm an improvisational guitar player. But when you're cutting stuff onto record, you know, especially guitar solos, I mean, you know, you have you you get into this mind state of you just every single note, every bend, every single accent, every pick sweep, everything, and you're hearing it on headphones and with, you know, especially without effects and. So with writing, you know, there's not really, uh, you know, there's no effects. You know, there's no reverb. <laughs> there's no echo. There's no delay. You can't, you know, in audio terms, it's called making it wet. You can't make words wet. You can't add things to them to make them feel a different way. You can, you can add emotion to them and things like that, you know. But when Janet said she heard that from one of her agents, I, I, I wasn't like, I wasn't overwhelmed, but I, I knew I had to, to, to pause for a second. You know, I'm plowing ahead in this rock and roll book. I'm on like draft number nine, I think. You know, and I'm telling myself now that if, uh, w- two things. One, if I, la- if I laugh at something, it stays in. So even if I'm on draft nine and I forget about something I wrote, obviously, because it's been, you know, three years at this point, um, and I laugh again when I reread it, it stays in. That's, that's rule number one right now. Uh, rule number two, or that I think is going to be rule number two, is 
if I'm rereading stuff and I don't stop, like I just keep reading, that's good. That means I, I, I kind of have a book in my hands, I think, right? Because when you're reading a good some, or a book, you know, you read it. <laughs> so those, those are the two things I got going on right now. But so Janet said that, and I had to, you know, I, I, me, I have to analyze everything and, you know, to the point where, you know, I might as well just see a psychiatrist. But I have you know, these doubts, and she said that, and I'm like, fuck, I'm like, you know what, I've got to take a breather and chill, so that's what I decided to do, uh, I'm putting it down for a bit, gonna pick at some other things that I'm working on, and just try to not hate myself too much in the process, um, and in the meantime, just keep doing these podcasts, because this stuff is a lot of fun, um, yeah, so that's that, and uh, as always, give us a follow. Instagram, Writing Friction. Twitter, Friction Writing. Um, and yeah, please share the episodes. That's all we can do at this point. Um, and I hope you enjoy this one. Thanks. What's going on, everyone? Uh, welcome to another episode of Writing Friction. And as always, today's guest is pretty cool uh what's going on scott o'connor how are you doing today i'm doing reasonably well michael how are you doing not too bad um i'm hanging out in san francisco and we're dealing with warm weather for a change i guess we have like two months out of the year where we can actually go outside in a t-shirt you're smiling you're an la guy right you've been we were talking before the podcast yeah, I live in LA and this is the time of year where in the morning, I think this morning we went for a bike ride and it was 50. Um, and then, you know, by now or an hour ago, it was like 75, 76. So you just, it's just layers coming on, layers going off for about two or three months. But you're originally an East Coast guy. So you I'm, yeah, I'm originally from New York. And so the idea of 50 being cold is like a stain on my moral character but i've lived here for about 20 years and so my blood has thinned i think considerably so that i do think 50 degrees is is cold even though i grew up in you know minus 20. without a doubt um i had a, a couple of episodes ago i spoke with i don't know if you know aon ivy and she lives in alaska and i mean she was you know very nice lady but man i mean there's no freaking way i mean that is just th- that's a commitment that, yeah, I mean, again, unless you're, again, she, we were talking about her writing, t- you know, routine and how she looks out the window and she sees the deer walking past her window and, you know, and that's what she looks for in inspiration. Uh, I'm not sure part of what LA part you're in, but are you finding inspiration from Los Angeles in your writing? Do you write about LA? Is LA a big thing in your personality? It is. And I'm kind of surprised surprised by it, I think, because when I first moved here, I, like I said, I grew up in, in Syracuse, New York, and went to school around there. Uh, and then I lived in Chicago for a few years. So I went from cold to colder. Oh, yeah. And then I moved out here and I, it took me a while to really fall in love with LA. I, I had a very, um, I think, complicated relationship with it, as a lot of people do. I've talked to a lot of people since and friends uh, who've moved here from other places. And and it's either the kind of place that you fall in love with immediately or it takes you a while. It's a it's a pretty um, complex city, I think. Uh-huh. And 
And what I realized a couple of years ago, I think maybe after my third book had come out and someone pointed out to me that they all take place in Los Angeles, um, that I realized I was trying to understand it by writing. Yeah, okay. And it, yeah. And it was about that time, I think, when, a, when I was working on that third book, which was a book of stories that all take place in LA, that I really realized that I do love it in all of its complexity and messiness and, and you know, all the things that there are to not love about it too. And so, uh, yeah, all, all of my books have taken place in some regard in Los Angeles, either in the present or the past. And I think that's been my way to get to know the city and the people in different communities and different neighborhoods. We've also moved around a good deal within the city. It's big but enough. Like, that- I mean, so it's the only city in America that's like that where it's so widespread vast that you're trying to, you know, you talk to someone, they live in LA and, you know, they've never been there. They think Hollywood, obviously, but it's no, no, no. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And I think it's also, and this is probably true of a lot of cities, but it's, it's really impossible to understand on a short visit. So it's not the kind of city where you can come for a weekend or a week and really get the idea. Not to say there are a lot of cities like that, but LA, it honestly took me years to just get it in my head of how vast it was. Um, and so moving around, I think helped too. We got to know different neighborhoods and we got to know different people who lived in, uh, in those neighborhoods, become part of those neighborhoods. So, uh, now I finally feel like this is home, but it took a while. It took at least 10 years, probably longer. So you're a guy, I mean, you said just before you're on your third book, you got a couple of books under your belt. When did you start becoming a writer? Were you reading as a kid? Were you the kind of person who came at it at 30 years old, like I did? Um, you know, what's your kind of roundabout way of ending up on this podcast? <laughs> it, it was, I think it was a combination of both of those things. I was definitely a, a obsessive reader. As a kid, I was a huge comic book fan, and then I also just devoured anything we could get in the library. Any comics specifically? Oh, at, at some point, everything. Okay. I mean, uh, I mean, largely when I was much younger, you know, Marvel, DC, superhero oh, stuff. Yeah, and then as sure. I got older into, uh, you know, I'm of the age where like the 80s black and white comic explosion happened and kind of the indie movement and the, and the uh, small press movement when I was a teenager. So I was, I was really interested in not only the art itself, but in um, artists who were kind of taking things into their own hands. It was an art form that people could actually publish their own work, which was really exciting to me. Graphic um, novels too, or strictly comic book form? Uh, oh, graphic novels too. Um, sure. Pretty much, pretty much everything that was, you know, that was available at the time. Um, but I never thought of myself as a writer. I didn't know anybody who was a writer. I didn't know that it was a job. I understood that people wrote all of these things and wrote all the books that I read, but it was very far removed from my life growing up. And uh, it wasn't really until uh, I had trained as an actor. That's what I really wanted to be when I was younger, because not that I knew any actors, but wow. I saw them on television or on stage or in film. And so it was a, I understood it was a job and you could, you could kind of learn uh, how to do it. But it wasn't until really I was in my mid twenties, early twenties when I started writing uh, screenplays. Oh, okay. Um, I I mean, from never taking a writing class and you just one day wanted to write a screenplay or. Pretty much. Right. Which seems like kind of a a backwards way to to get into it. Um, 
I was I was living in Chicago and I was acting and most of my friends were actors or designers or stage managers or people who worked in theater. And so I just felt I had this tremendous resource of talent around me and wanted to work with people uh, that I enjoyed working with. And, and I was very interested in film. This was in the late 90s. So there was that kind of second independent film movement like Robert Rodriguez, mm -hmm. people like that who were making their own movies on yeah. relatively little money. Um, and so it seemed possible and digital video had just kind of come around. So suddenly you could maybe do this. So I was I was writing things for us to do, basically. Um, and then my- Chicago's a huge acting time. Yeah, it's, it's one of the biggest, yeah. Huge yeah. And, and such a great experience. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's one of the few places, um, yeah, it's one of the places we always think, well, maybe we'd move back to Chicago because it's such a, it's so cold, oh. but it's such a vibrant, creative <laughs> city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but okay. my ideas for the film started to outstrip any budget we could have. You know, our budget was everybody tossing some money and on the weekend we would film a yeah. short film in people's apartments or if they worked at a restaurant after hours. But um, I started to write feature length scripts, which nobody could, you know, we couldn't make. And after doing that for a few years and moving to Los Angeles and just realizing that um, I didn't know how to get any of these things even looked at. And what I loved about it was the writing. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. And so that's when I moved over to writing fiction, to writing prose. But I was, like you said, I was almost 30. I was probably 30 when I really started like seriously writing prose. And so you said you moved to LA around that time. Was the move to Los Angeles, Los Angeles, specifically to be either acting or writing, or was it kind of both? You were kind of was it the typical LA story, like you know, being a waiter, you know, and doing the thing and whatever? Pretty much. I was never. I was actually never a waiter. I think I would be a terrible waiter. But I worked all I sorts of. I always, uh, yeah, I have a tremendous respect for people in the in the food service industry because okay. I feel okay. like I could never, I could never do it. Um, but I had, I had probably seven or eight years of very strange jobs all over yeah. the place, uh, probably the equivalent of of waiting tables. Um, but it was, it was like you were saying, it was, it was both. But I was conflicted because I'd always wanted to be an actor, but I'd fallen in love with this other thing, and this other thing kind of felt like cheating on the thing that I thought I was supposed to be doing. And I also got to a point not too long after I moved to Los Angeles that I realized I couldn't do both well. I just didn't have the time. I had a full-time job and I was getting up early to write. And then after work, I would go to rehearsal or go to auditions or have a play uh, performance. And it was just, even though I was in my 20s, it was just too much. I couldn't, I couldn't do everything. And so I decided to, to focus on writing and, and move away from acting. But I was, and, yeah, I was about 30. And so you're working on this, are you working on only screenplays at that time? Or did the idea of long form fiction start forming as well? Or was it, did you finish a manuscript and then you were like, I did that. Now let's do something else. I think one of the real motivations to move into fiction from screenplays was, well, first that I loved fiction and there were writers that I loved. And, you know, you, you read somebody, especially when you're younger and you think, I want to do that. You know, I want to, I want to, I want to make people feel the way that this, this made me feel. Um, but the other part of it was that writing screenplays was almost too much like acting in that I had no control over the outcome. Oh, wow. Uh, what do you mean? Well, as an, as an actor, I was, uh, we were auditioning for 
whatever was out there. Of and course. if someone offered you a part, you took it, but you didn't have any control over whether it was good or not necessarily, you know? Are you saying uh, writing the screenplay felt the same way? In that a screenplay is a blueprint for something that hasn't been built yet. Mm-hmm. And even though, you know, and I've, I've done screenwriting since, and since I've been writing fiction, um, and so understand a little better about the mechanics of the, the business side of things. At that point, it was just such a black hole. I didn't know anybody who could read the script. I didn't even know where to start. So I would write a script and it would just kind of sit, you know, my friends would read it. We'd have a staged reading and we'd uh, have a good time. And then that was kind of it. And so they felt incomplete. They weren't, they weren't a, a book. Yeah. And I think that's where I, I finally gravitated to this thing that I'd always loved as a reader and that I felt I had, you know, that I wanted to develop a voice, I wanted to immerse myself in. And then at the very least, even if something wasn't published, it existed. Mm-hmm. And it existed in a finished form or a somewhat finished form. And so that was really appealing to me at the time. Yeah. I, I cracked this. I've talked about this on the podcast before. Right after, uh, you know, high school, I took a little bit of time off before officially going to college. And the first thing I did was I, I was in North Jersey. I got a job audio engineering, went to school for audio engineering, got a job at a studio in lower Manhattan. The, the receptionist at the studio was a screenwriter. And I watched her ask every single person that walked, Matthew McConaughey, David Schwimp, every single person that walked out there was like, hey, so you're here for the... And then she would check them in and then she would throw them that man. And she'd be like, Oh, by the way, <laughs> I'm just like, Oh my God. I'm like, that's, that's intense. That's a, but she had commitment. I mean, yeah, the, I don't know what, I, I don't know if you're still too connected with the film world in 2020, but I can only imagine the early 2000s how competitive that must've been. Well, and I think I didn't have, I didn't have the ambition yeah. Or the right type of ambition. Yeah. And so what I loved was writing. Yeah. And the business side of it was something I, I wasn't sure I had the talent for or the capacity for or the wherewithal. Um, and so I would just get stuck in the writing. The writing was what I wanted to do. And eventually I realized that if that was the case, I should focus on on that. You know, not to say there isn't obviously a business aspect to, yeah. to the book industry, um, but it it was something I could immerse myself in that, like I had said, if when it's finished, it's finished. Mm-hmm. And even if it sits in a drawer and, um, you know, only people around you read it, it's still a finished thing. It still yeah. exists in the same way it exists if it's on a bookshelf at a bookstore, whereas a screenplay is, is a means to an end. <laughs> so you're kicking around LA, you're writing a screenplay, you decide to ditch the acting thing you want to write. What's the first book? When did the idea come to you? Was it the collection of stories or was it the novel? No, I wrote the first, the first book I wrote was a novella that I self-published. Wait, are you, you were talking to someone who literally just self-published their first novella three weeks before the world shut down. Oh, congr- well, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. But terrible it. timing, yeah. of course. Awful. Yeah. Uh, well, okay, real quick. Why did you self-publish it? Well, this was, this is like 2003, 2004. And I was working, my day job at the time was as a graphic designer. Okay. Uh, And I I had no training in graphic design, but I'd fallen into this job and I had it for four or five years. And I really, I really got into it. It was one of the best day jobs I'd ever had. Yeah. Um, And so I was really interested in design and 
making things, physical things. Uh, we were in the DVD business, if you remember that at the time. So I designed all of the digital aspects of the DVD, but also all the packaging. And so okay. that was something that I was really into. Uh, and I was fully invested in writing. And so uh, at the time, I wrote this piece, which was not a novel, but it wasn't a short story. It was this kind of in-between thing that I then learned was a novella. I had no, I also had no um, creative writing training. So everything kind ever, of came never, from... Same with me. You never took a writing class ever. Not, not until I was 40 and I went to really? grad school. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. So everything was, you know, haunting the bookshelves at Barnes and Noble yeah. or Skylight in Los Angeles and trying to figure out what all these things were called. Yeah. Um and and I just was really interested in the idea of making a book, making the physical book. Yeah. And this was at the time, so 2003, where print on demand wasn't really a thing yet. It was starting yeah. to become a thing. Um, so I ended up working with a, a printer in Texas to design and print the book, the physical book, and then they shipped them to me in LA. And then I had to sell them. I had to, you know, there was, I was the distributor. I mean, it, it's so fresh in my mind. I can spin a thousand things. I mean, but for a couple of things, you know, did you have to write your own copyright page? Like I did every, Absolutely. I, you have to buy the barcodes you got it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I didn't, I, I can't draw anything. I had to hire someone to design the book thing. I cover, I had, you have to write the back of the book. Uh, you have to do everything um but i could again we're talking different eras where your era you know you're saying technological advancements haven't hadn't come along at that point nowadays the way i did it print on demand i mean you you get your finish i formatted it myself with a software called vellum and then mm -hmm. it spits it out and you pop it into amazon kindle direct publishing and two days later uh, you have your book um, right yeah, yeah. So, so you had to you hired a guy from Texas to do it for you. No, I I did all the design and everything because I was working as a designer. To, to and, print the book. Though. Right, right. I worked with a yeah. printer, and the way I found the printer was they were the they were the printer responsible for a lot of the comic books I had been into, and so I oh. I called them up and said, "Do you do ever do this kind of stuff?" And they said, mm -hmm. "This seems interesting," um, but it was going to be a small print run. I think my initial print run was five hundred copies, okay. but you had to do them you had to do them all at once. And so, mm. Oh, okay. So my studio apartment was full of these boxes of this book. Like my studio apartment. Yeah. <laughs> and I had no, you know, I, I did it because I wanted to do it. And then I thought, well, how am I going to sell? Like, who's going to want these things? What do I do with them? So it was a, it was a really great adventure in that my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, and I spent a long time just kind of driving up and down the California coast, knocking on bookstore doors and asking people if they were interested. And sometimes they were, and sometimes they weren't and doing readings at bars and, um, you know, selling them out of the back of my car, basically. Um, and then I had, a, I had a couple of breaks, which were totally lucky. One, I don't know, you probably knew more about this than I did at the time, which is I had already printed the book before I realized that I had to send it to people to get like reviews. So I didn't do any pre- you know, pre-publication yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff. Yeah. I had the book and then I realized that nobody would accept books for review if it had already been published. Uh -huh. um, so on a, on just a complete crossing my fingers, I sent one to one of the buyers at Barnes and Noble okay, yeah. uh, who I'd heard, I think on, they probably weren't podcasts then, but it was like an internet radio. Was it like a local <laughs> Barnes and Noble or like, or like a, no, it was, it was the, you know, it was the national. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah their yeah. book buyer at the time. And then I sent a copy to the LA times, um, as just a, here's a, a book. Maybe you'd want to review. Um, 
And at the time I was getting uh, uh, 10 rejections a day from people oh, yeah. for different things. Were right? you I mean, querying it out to agents at all before you decided to self-publish it? No, I had no knowledge of that world whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. That wasn't even something that had occurred to me. Yeah, okay, okay. Um, but the breaks were that uh, I went on a trip with a friend of mine. We actually were, you and I are talking the night after the uh, World Series, and a friend and I went on a, a baseball road trip where we drove around part of the country and went to a number of ballparks, and we were gone for like two weeks. And when I came back, there was a letter from the book buyer at Barnes & Noble that said they wanted to buy a 1,000 copies. Holy shit. Of the book, <laughs> which was great, but then I had to print another thousand copies of the book. You got to pay for it, <laughs> right? So I had to pay for it up front, which yeah. was oh yeah, a real stress. And it probably wasn't as cheap as it is today. No, I'm trying to think what it. It was like four dollars a book or five dollars a book. Yeah, Amazon's like two fifty a book or something. Yeah, like that. yeah. And then I had to ship them. So it was so I, I I used to have I probably still do notebooks with all my calculations, but the cover price was eight dollars was what I sold it for, and I want to say my cost—it's the same story. This is crazy. Okay, yeah. okay. And my cost was probably like seven fifty, right per per book when everything was You're done. Not doing so it to make money? No, thankfully no, because I certainly did not. Um, but the second break was one Sunday morning, a friend of mine who was one of the first people I met in like the literary world through this book, yeah. um, called me up on Sunday morning early and said, congratulations, you know, you must be thrilled. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, they reviewed your book in the LA times book review. It was completely out of the blue. Um, Susan Salter Reynolds, who had a column at the time that I loved called discoveries where she would usually review small press or indie books, okay. reviewed the book and gave it this great review. And so that was a huge, you know, you, as a writer, you know, this, like you, you can't live off of other people's encouragement, right? You have to, no. you have to live off your own <laughs> drive, but it doesn't hurt to have somebody's encouragement every once in a while. Um, so that was really big. And that was a, and then I was able to, I knew enough then that I should probably look for an agent. And so then I was able to send what became my novel with this quote from the LA times. So that was, that was really helpful. And so you finished the novella. Are you the kind of guy it's like, you fit, are you, do you write multiple things at the same time? Did, when that second novel, you started working on it, had the idea already festered in your head? How quickly was that next thing started? I want to say it was quickly, but it probably wasn't. There was probably a period of casting around. There's usually, for me anyways, I have a few months of like panicking that I'll never write again, yeah. combined with either too many or not enough ideas. And okay. so um, I want to say it was probably within six months or a year I started, but it was so intimidating. The idea that I was going to write a novel, like who was I to, it was, it was hard enough to write this thing that was like 80 pages. And now I'm talking about doing something that was going to be multiples of that. So it was, so I kept it secret. The only person who knew I was doing it at the time was my, my wife, because I didn't, I felt if I told too many people, I would be embarrassed when I didn't. Yeah. Dude. Had you hooked up with an agent at that point? Or are you still kind of bouncing around? Mm -mm, no, I, it, I wasn't. I didn't um, have any contact with any agents until the manuscript of that novel was finished. So that would this would be like another four years after the novel. Oh wow! Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a while. I sent what the are you finished doing manuscript. That time, odd jobs. Yeah, yeah. I was working as a designer, and then the place I was working shut down, and so a friend and I started our own uh, design and post production firm which oh, sounds okay. fancy yeah, but yeah. it was out of our apartments um but it was enough to keep us going we had very low overhead at the time yeah. 
I mean, it's like me. I, we were talking before the podcast. I have a dog walking business. Mm-hmm. And that's what A, allows me to live in San Francisco. And B, allows me to do my writing. Um, it's like my own thing. I, you know, I don't have emails coming in all day. You know, it's right. a weird thing to do anyways. Um, so that's cool. That's cool that you, you kind of created your own, your own little thing to do so you could pursue this other thing. Yeah, it was exactly that. It was trying to create a life that would allow me to write. And, uh, and I enjoyed the design part and I loved working with my friend and, uh, but that was the passion was writing from, you know, five to seven every morning. Uh, and then, and then doing, and then doing the day job work and oh, then yeah. maybe trying to steal an hour in the afternoon exactly. to write. And you need also time to read. Are you reading during this time also? Um, did you, once you kind of started becoming a, you know, more of a writer, did what you read start to change? Oh yeah, because I had no, um, I had no formal education in it. So not just in the creative writing aspect, but in the literature aspect of it. Um, I'd never taken a a literature course in college. So it was all, um, you know, and and there was a great source of um, insecurity Mm -hmm. for me, you know, especially being around other writers, because I felt like, I don't know anything, you know, these people know they're dropping names, they've all read the same stuff. I haven't read any of this. Um, but at the same time, it was it was kind of wonderful because I was able to really discover what spoke to me um, without necessarily having someone say, "Well, that's the right thing" or "That's the wrong thing." So, so no, I read I read ravenously throughout that and continue to, of course, today. Uh-huh. But um, but during that period, for sure. So you write the second novel. I'm sorry, you write the second book, which is a novel, first book mm-hmm. novel. That, is that when the querying starts? What? You know, yeah, because people, people right, the, the whole idea of the podcast, people want to know. Everyone thinks that this is some magical world that, you know, is there's gatekeepers and people that are going to push you away. You know, how did you break the ice? How did you get in? You know, and when was, you start, you're, you're talking to a dude who saw, who's seen the inst- behind the curtain of the music world, <laughs> and it's not that impressive. Um, and when you finally see what's going on, you're like, oh, well, okay, now it makes more sense. Did you kind of get that once you were able to peek into it a little bit? Although at the time, my peek into it was very small. Um, I was really fortunate. I had a friend who, again, who I'd met through the novella process, who was a writer, who had sold a book. He'd sold a novel and okay. had a novel published, and he had an agent. Got and it. so he was very helpful in telling me what a query letter was. You know, I had no idea. This is what you do. You write this email and you, you make a list. <laughs> yeah. You, you get on, uh, you know, you figure out who the, your dream agents are and then you like find their assistance and then you send this thing out and here's how you do it. And so that was tremendously helpful. And, and so you I get sent, rejected by all of them. <laughs> and you get rejected by all of them. And I had my, and his, his advice I think was come up with five or 10. And then when you send those out, come up with another five or 10. Yeah. And when you send those out and, and he was right. Like everybody said, no, no, no. Oh, you know, the writing's great. No, yeah. this is really dark. No. Yeah. Um, so all the, the kind of nice rejections or just radio silence, right? You Which book hear. was this specifically? This was untouchable. So this okay. was my first novel. Okay. Um, and then I remember um, sending it out to another batch of agents, actually the week our son was born. Oh, wow. Um, and that was one of my goals was like, let me get this off my desk, you know, because now we're going to be parents. And I think things are going to change a wow. little bit in our lives. Um, and I heard back from one of one of the agents I, I was really hoping for. Um, she emailed me and said, 
Well, I really, I'm really interested in the book, but uh, she was going on maternity leave and wasn't okay. taking any other clients at the time. And so I remember going upstairs. My office at the time was in the basement of this tiny house we were renting. And I went upstairs and my wife, who was just days away from having our, our son, and I said, oh, I got a real near miss. But I, the agent actually emailed me and said, yeah, you know, this was a near miss. And I went back downstairs and there was another email from her. And she said, actually, it's my assistant who has been advocating for this book oh, nonstop. Wow. And we're, we're going to make him an agent. Can he call you? And I said, sure. And, uh, and he called and we hit it off. And uh, we've, our relationship continues today. It's been 10 years uh, since that phone call. And it was one of the greatest you know, moments in, in my professional and, and personal life. We're also, we're also great friends as well. But he's been um, you know, a tireless editor and, and advocate and shoulder to cry on and therapist uh, and all those things for, for 10 years. And I was his first I was his, I writer. Was yeah. the first client. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, that's really cool. So, so you write the first book, get the novella, write the second book. Now you're in it. What is, you know, what, what's the motivation now? You said, obviously you have a child. Um, you know, I'm, I don't know, is, is writing paying for everything at this point? Are you still working? So this, yes, yeah, so people need to hear this. So, it's not like you release a novel and then all of a sudden you don't have to work ever. Again. No, yeah. no. Sorry, I shook my head vehemently, which doesn't come through on yeah. on audio. I know, but yeah. uh, um, no, writing was I, I hadn't made a dime from writing. Yeah. So the novella, like I said, I was kind of joking <laughs> that my overhead was seven dollars and fifty cents, and I sold the book for eight dollars. But yeah. I wasn't joking that much. Um, if if I broke even on it, maybe I don't know. Um, and so, no, I was still working. I had this this design company, and that was, yeah. you know, paying my share of the bills. And my wife's job was paying, you know, the other part. So, um, no, writing was not. Um, and I think even at the time, I didn't really think that. Well, there'll be a point where I'll make money at this because it just didn't seem. I don't know. I didn't. It was out of my world, yeah. my worldview. So yeah. even when my agent started to send the manuscript out after we'd worked on it together for a while. This is um, for untouchables. Yeah. Yeah. This is for untouchables. So when he starts sending it out, uh, of course you have the dream that somebody's going to call you from this big publishing company, but I didn't know what that would mean financially or yeah. not. I think what I really was hoping for was something that would make it feel worthwhile to write another one. And I didn't know exactly what that was, but it was like, you know, it's some form of external validation. If somebody thought they should publish the book, that might have been enough, you know. Um, or if someone thought they could publish the book and and they'd pay me, you know, five hundred dollars, that that would have seemed like enough, and that's probably good because that's pretty much what what ended up happening. But, uh, yeah. Um, but that's what I was. No, but the financial aspect, no, absolutely not. Yeah. It was not a financial um, factor for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So. Now you're a writer. Now you're you're living in LA. You're doing the thing. How quickly are, you know? You said earlier in the podcast, you know, ideas come at you quick, right? It's sometimes too quickly. Um, when you're, I asked you before, when you're working on something, you're involved in that one project, and it seemed to be that was the case. How much time do you spend now that you're kind of you know longer down the line looking back? Do you kind of, you know, A, what's the routine like now that you're kind of in it? Do you have the same routine as you did on book one, you know, now? Um, Also, you know, we talked about motivation and wanting to write now that you're looking back on it now, you know, is it 
you can become more successful? Is it just, are you, do you think you become a better writer? You know? I hope so. I don't know. I'm probably not the best judge of that. I hope so. I hope that, I think what, what carries from one project to another, because like you said, I, I tend not to work on multiple things at the same time. Um, And so what usually carries over is there's some unresolved question or there's something, all my books start with some kind of question that I have about the world, basically, that I don't have an answer to. And the book is an attempt not really to answer the question, but to engage with the question. And I know the book is finished when I feel like I've engaged with it as much as I can at this moment. And, but usually what happens is other questions, of course, arise in the, in the course of that process. And so by the end of a book, which might take four or five years okay. from beginning to end to write, there are a number of other questions that I've become interested in. And so usually that's where the next project comes from is one of those kind of carries over and I play around with it for a while. And then I start to find my angle on it or my approach on it. And yeah. so I, I don't know about being a better writer, but I hope I'm asking harder questions maybe yeah um i'm a weird obsession with danielle Steele for some reason she lives in san francisco so she lives in san francisco and either i'm misquoting her and i misquoted her on almost every episode at this point <laughs> or i'm right but she says she works on five books at a time and she, yeah so like you know and she's able to kind of you know she's like i edit one book at, you know at this time i'm you know, doing notes on this one. I'm finishing a manuscript on that one. I'm drafting on this one. Um, I'm the same way, unfortunately, where I've started since I finished that novella and published it, you know, two novels and short stories, um, you know, all these other things. So looking on your website, I was kind of checking out other things you do and you also write nonfiction. Um, and you, I'm going to only bring it up because it's kind of instantly lit up to me. Uh, you wrote a piece for the New York times about Brock Lesnar. Right. Um, is that something you were just hired to do? Are you a pro wrestling fan? Are you a UFC fan? I'm a huge UFC fan. Um, watching that dude fight. Any, for anyone who doesn't know Brock Lesnar, just Google his name. Go to Google Images. And this is a guy, I mean, what is he, six foot seven? I At mean, least, right? There seems, yeah. Just, and just bread on corn and, I mean, <laughs> and violence. <laughs> Violence. Yeah. How did that come about? Did the New York, was that something you were personally interested in or they contact you? No, it was something I was interested in at the time. So between, uh, between my second novel, Half World, and the book of stories, Perfect Universe, I worked on a TV project um, that I created that never ended up getting made, but got kind of close um, uh-huh. for a while. Um, but it was about professional wrestling. It was about um, kind of the backstage world of it, which is yeah. something I'd always been pretty interested in. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm always interested in subcultures and sort of um, parts of culture that are off, you know, to the left or to the, you know, off of what we might consider mainstream. Um, and I really connected with um, the idea of it as art and as art by people who um, are basically shunned <laughs> You know, like you could be a writer, you could be a painter, you could be a musician, and you you can struggle as we all do. 
But if you tell someone you're a musician or a writer or a painter, they don't like scoff at you. Now they might, they might, if you're, if you're waiting their table, right. And they might say, oh, of course, or roll their eyes. And that happens, but people appreciate the idea of that art. And what I was fascinated with professional wrestling, which is, I think an art form, it's not for everybody, but in a, a performance art basically is that it's largely derided. Um, and so the idea of these people, these women and men, not only doing the things that all artists do, which is working crappy jobs and, you know, having trouble with relationships and moving from place to place because they're so devoted to this thing, but also risking their physical safety constantly, um, all for something that even if you became the most successful person in it, most of the world would still like turn up their nose at you. So I was fascinated with that. And I was doing this, this TV project that lived in that world, um, and so Lesnar was one of the real world world figures I was fascinated with because, like you said, he also uh, fights in mixed martial arts, which is legitimate fighting, right? So it's not it's not uh, choreographed fighting, but he does both. And but so he came from that pro wrestling world originally, I mean, he he wrestled in college. I think he was a right. He was an amateur wrestler. Yeah, he was an yeah, NCAA yeah. champion. Yeah. yeah, and then he moved to professional wrestling, and then he moved to UFC, and then he moved back. But what I was what I was interested in with him was what he. Um, the kind of added layer he brought to professional wrestling of at any moment, this guy could, what if he turns it real? Yeah. And there was something very postmodern about that, that I thought wrestling fans responded to this idea of what if he breaks the game, you know, which he never does. Of course, he's a professional. He does his job. But it's called breaking the fourth wall, right? Isn't that what it's referred to? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, what if, it. yeah, it's like, what if the actor all of a sudden, camera all of a sudden it's just, yeah. Right, but not in a way that was scripted, but in a you exactly. know in a in an authentic way. So that's what I was, and that was the piece I wrote for the yeah. New York Times Magazine was about. Um, so I, again, I feel like at this point in the conversation, our lines are literally. So a month ago, I finished. So I mean, I was I wanted to ask you, you write a novella because it wasn't a story, but it also wasn't a novel. You write a novel. Eventually, you start writing short stories. Eventual question I want to ask you is how did you start writing short stories? But the first thing I want to say is I just wrote a short story a month ago about um, I don't know how involved the pro wrestling, but Vice had put out a uh, a series on YouTube about two seasons pro wrestling. Oh sure, um, I Beyond the Ring I forget the name, but they did an Owen Hart episode mm -hmm. about Owen Hart, the guy who fell from the, right. you know what I'm talking about. Um, and at the very end of the episode, Jr. the announcer guy. Mm -hmm. He says a line, and it was it was. I'm watching it. He was beautiful, and he says, "When he fell from the sky in Kansas City," and I'm like, "Holy shit, that's a short story." That uh, as soon as I heard, it, I'm like, "Boom!" And for the next like month and a half, I wrote this fictional last day of Owen Hart. His name is Logan Smart, but I went into that world and I started mm -hmm. researching that world. And you're talking about. I submitted it to the New Yorker and the Paris Review. I'm waiting for rejections from both. Um, it's still it's only been a couple of weeks. Uh, but, sure. but but re, but researching that world, you have to respect it is an art form. Um, like you said, you know, an aerial art form, but they're sacrificing their bodies. I mean, these guys are getting fucking smashed around. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, no, it's cool that you brought that up. I, I think you know people just need to know it's. And I didn't really realize that until I really started researching it. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I, I hope you had fun doing that. But then, oh, it, was, so, it was great. It was such a great uh, one of the best parts of being a writer is you get to 
be like an amateur expert on a lot yeah. of different things. Yeah, okay. And so submerging yeah, myself in that world. And we went to a lot of like shows in, uh, you know, VFW halls, oh, and, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, you know, tiny, and where people are still putting it all on the line mm-hmm. for 200 people. Okay. Um, and so, but it was, it was great because I also was able, like my wife would go with me and oh, we yeah. would make a night of it. And it's, it's just, it's just so great to discover those parts of the world. And I feel like if I wasn't a writer and maybe that's not true, but I feel like if I wasn't a writer, I wouldn't be able to do it. It's like my, my sheriff's badge where you can kind yeah. of show the badge and say, Hey, can I talk to you for a minute? Yeah, about no, this? Most definitely. Did yeah. you ever see the wrestler with Mickey Rourke? Oh yeah. Oh sure. Oh sure. yeah. I mean, great stuff. Um, all right. So how did you get into writing short stories? I mean, were you kicking around the idea original for a while or did you just have, again, something you wrote that just wasn't long enough to be, um, it was really because when I started, so before I wrote the novella, when I decided that I was really going to pursue writing yeah. fiction or writing prose, basically, yeah. um, I started because I loved short stories and I thought, well, this is how you start, right? You write yeah. short stories and, and yeah. yeah. Um, and they were impossible. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't write <laughs> them. I mean, I wrote a bunch of half short stories, um, but I couldn't do it. It was like writing, it was it was like someone you know playing around with the guitar and then somebody saying, "Well, write a three write the perfect three minute pop song." Talking to a guitarist, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, it was it was impossible. I couldn't do it, and I found and and then I wrote a novella and two novels, yeah. and the idea <laughs> of writing short stories still terrified me. Mm-hmm. Um, and after I finished the second novel, I really felt a little burned out um, because I'd written those two books pretty much back to back. So it was about ten years of writing these two novels. And I knew I wanted to do something different. I didn't know what it was. Um, that was about the time I was doing the TV work, which was nice and different as well. And I thought, well, what if I what if I tried to do this again yeah. and uh, with no guarantee that it would work? And uh, it was just such a it was just such a fresh way of looking at writing. And I uh, I just loved it. I had once I I'd written a couple stories. I realized I wanted to make a book. And the stories all sort of revolve around a central theme. So they were all written for the book. Which seems to be, uh, I forget who I was talking to, uh, the name escapes me, but another author was talking about this. And she said she was writing a bunch of stories, but when she went to you know, to get it pub- submitted for publication, she kept hearing, great, you have 10 stories, but it's not a collection of stories. It, mm. it needs to be. So you, by just chance, happened to be writing about a theme or kind of centered it around just Annoying. Well, I had this, I had an idea that came from the last novel, like okay. I was saying, they, they sort of hung over and I had yeah. tried to write something about it. I thought it was going to be another novel and I just didn't have the brain space at that yeah. point. Our son was really young. Um, I just finished these two books. I couldn't hold another novel in my yeah. head. And so I, I changed that to be this central through line. And as I started writing these stories and I started really enjoying the process of it and being challenged by the process, I thought, well, maybe this is a book. It was like my way of kind of sneaking into a book. Um, and then I started to set rules for myself because I thought that would be interesting. So I wanted 10 stories. I They could be read in any order. Um, but if they were read in a particular order, which is the order in which they're published in the book, they would also tell a larger story. So there was kind of this modular idea to them. Like the Pink Floyd poster behind you. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That, yeah. Yeah. That wasn't uh, we should say I'm in my son's bedroom. So there's a John <laughs> Floyd poster uh, on the wall behind me. Um, he's he's the guy who's got a Grateful Dead shirt on. So it's all good. Right. <laughs> it's another podcast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you have, all right. So you have the collection. And 
are you a word count guy? Because again, short stories, you know, I, I just recently uh, finished um, Jesus' Son by Dennis Johnson. And those mm-hmm. stories are very, very, very short. Um, but if you, um, I don't know if you've ever read uh, Fortune, I'm looking at my bookshelf, people. So everyone, everyone always wants to know. I, I, bookshelves everywhere. Um, it doesn't seem earthquake proof. Uh, I've only experienced, only, I've experienced three earthquakes while living in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the last one was 30 seconds before Paul Simon took the stage at the Greek Theater in Berkeley. I was, in the, I was in the cheap seats. There had been an earthquake earlier in the day, but not a big one. Later in the day, it's you know, lights are about to go down at the show, and I mean, it, it, the crowd goes fucking wild. Sure, lights go down, and it was on. He was doing the 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 whatever anniversary of Graceland, and he came on, and man, I'm, I'm a Paul Simon fanatic, and he fucking ripped it apart. I mean, ripped it apart. But that was the last earthquake. I think I can. Have you experienced any crazy earthquakes in LA? Yeah, right. I mean, in twenty years. Yeah, they're all a little crazy because yeah. they don't they don't compute. You can't believe that the Earth is mm-hmm. moving in this mm-hmm. way. Um, we haven't had, thankfully, like we've never been in a serious one, right? Because there yeah. hasn't really been one in Not twenty years. Well. But we have some. We've had some good ones where you wake up and you feel like you're on a ship and everything is swaying and yeah. things are falling off the shelves. So it's yeah. no, it's part of the the climate. Yeah. Uh, wait, why, why are we talking about earthquakes? I totally lost <laughs> Paul Simon. I think we went into Paul, Paul Simon. Simon uh, bad concept albums. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's just, you know, it's cool. Oh, 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 yes. Um, I was going to bring up the bookshelf, bookshelf, not safe earthquake. Oh, short um, stories. You were. Short stories. Were, yeah. Adam Johnson, who everyone knows, I'm mm-hmm. upset. He lives like five blocks from me. Uh, he wrote in Fortune Smiles. He wrote that, you know, that, that won the National Book Award. Mm-hmm. And some of those stories are very long. Um, you know, so how, when you were doing this, were you reading short story collections to kind of get an idea of how long they should be, or you kind of just knew when it was over? Well, I don't know if I was reading them at the time, but I had definitely done that in the past. Oh, you know, like I said, I'd, I'd learned by reading. So anything I knew about short stories, I learned from reading anthologies or collections or uh, short stories in literary magazines or The New Yorker or wherever it was. Yeah. So, I, so I had an idea. Um, and by John that Cheever? point, pardon? John Cheever? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I've got the little paperback of that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm not sure I had a, a specific length in mind, but as a as someone who had written novels, I tended to go longer, probably rather than yeah. shorter. Um, so most of the challenge was cutting things down yeah. and and finding the what's the moment, yeah, you know, what's the crystalline idea here rather than the sprawling idea. That was that was really the challenge. So I think it was more cutting back rather than expanding. Are you a big draft guy? Do you do a lot of drafts of things or do you do one, two drafts and kind of just. Oh no, I do a million drafts. I do. You know, I I number them all and they go to, they're all V, V 13, V 14. And then it's like V 14, final V 14, final, final (laughs) V 14, real final. Yeah. 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 Right. All caps Uh final. So no, I do multiple, multiple drafts. And that's been one of the, that was one of the things I had no idea about writing. I knew nothing about revision. Yeah. So as a, as a, kid or even as a teenager or a college student every once in a while i'd think i'm gonna write something and i would you know it's two o'clock in the morning in your dorm and you write this thing and you think it's brilliant and then the next morning you wake up and you look at it and you're like this is awful this is like who who wrote this and i but i had no idea that 
that was the process mm -hmm. that that was stage one and stage two is okay is this thing worth pursuing and if it is how do i shape it i didn't know that so i i just got frustrated and stopped yeah. and it wasn't until i started writing my screenplays and reading up on that process and screenwriters at the time were much more transparent about their process than other writers they would talk about talking about what they were doing yeah talking about what they were doing and how it was done and what it meant to revise and this is draft two especially with screenwriting it would say right on the script if you could and this is also the late 90s so everything starts to move online yeah. so all of a sudden you could find screenplays yeah. and i'd look at the cover of whatever it was and go oh, this is the ninth draft what does that mean that means there were eight drafts whereas when you buy a, a novel it doesn't say 15th draft on it um you know we seven wanna, editors we, 15th draft yeah right. <laughs> we don't want people to know all of that and i always tell students um who have a lot of anxiety about this as i still do that you know your job as a writer is to make as many tracks in the snow as you can and then your job in revision is to focus the path and then to erase all the tracks uh -huh. so that when the thing is done we don't see the work we just yeah. see the novel or the essay or the story, the poem, whatever it might be, but you have to make those. No one just jumps right to the, you know, the end result with no tracks. Part of your job is erasing those tracks. Yeah. And it took a long time for me to learn that and to understand that. So I'm a big draft draft and having the, giving yourself the freedom to do those drafts and to trust that you will find a way to make it what you want to make it. It will take time and it will take perseverance, but it's not a one and done thing that it's, you know, whenever I write a draft and read it and I'm disappointed in it, I take the day or two days and feel awful about myself, of course. But then I, hopefully I'm able to remind myself that you have another chance. Yeah. You know, you always have another chance to uh, get it closer to what you want it to be. And going back to, you know, people not thinking about the final product and what goes into it. You know, I come from the music world and growing, you know, touring in bands forever and playing and recording music. And, you know, a lot of pre-production goes into before a band even steps foot into mm -hmm. a recording studio. Again, I keep looking at the Pink Floyd poster. I'm going to keep using them as an example. You know, before they recorded The Wall, they didn't just write the songs and walk into the studio and record it. No, no, no. They spent months and months and months perfecting and perfecting and arguing and hating and mm -hmm. all that shit. Um, and yet with the novella and myself, I had to learn that, teach that myself too, of just, you know, you write this draft and you finish it. And you, just because you finished it doesn't mean it's any good. Um, mm -hmm. And when I finished that first draft of the novella, I was just so stoked that I finished it that I didn't even think about the process of, oh, no, dude, you got to do like six more drafts at, this right. at least. Um, yeah. And it's cool. It, I, 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 that idea turns me on. I like that in the sense that, like you said, it gives you a chance. Like you said, you put it down for a day or two, you hate yourself, but you come back and it's a chance to get back to it to make it better i love the idea of just working on things and working on things and trying to cut away the fat really i, I don't mm -hmm. know if you're a, a, I'm a i'm a word vomit guy and what i mean by that is i write a lot of words mm -hmm. and so my revisions are there's a lot of fat to cut out over the process of your writing have you kind of sharpen your sword you think or is there less revisions as time goes on or is it still just draft after draft after draft I no, mean, you, still, you're working, you just released a brand new book, right? What's the name of the brand new book? Uh, Zero Zone, which yeah. just came out a couple of weeks ago. And, yeah. and Would you have a copy? Can you show people? Uh, sure. Definitely. 
That's a dope. Who did the? I love that cover. That's a great cover. Um, yeah, Counterpoint does a great job with their design. Uh, yeah. Jay Michelli did the awesome. uh, the cover for this. Yeah. But um, no, you're talking about revision. I think what I what I finally why I finally fell in love with it was realizing that it was the only thing in my life, anyways, that I could keep doing until I got it where I wanted it. You know, like in everyday interactions, just conversations with people or relationships or your other job, you do something and that's kind of it. Like you don't yeah. get to go, you don't get to pause time and go back and redo that conversation again and again and again until it comes out the way you want it. And so there's something about revision and writing that I love and that maybe you can love too much and, and not let something go when it's ready to go because you you don't have to get it right the first time. And there's there's kind of a forgiveness that's built in there, I think, which can be really helpful overall in life to say, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to give myself and then extrapolating that to other people. Let me give other people a chance to, you know, do this again or do something over. Yeah, I mean, I, I love the idea of just, you know, the discipline of it. It's a mental discipline. You have to to get over that doubt. I'm sure you still have doubt, you know, the next book. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, every day. I mean, and to get, it takes more than just being a good writer. You also have to be a good, almost mentalist mm-hmm. um, to, you know, get rejected. I got rejected by 73 literary agents and I you keep going. You're like, okay, mm-hmm. well, you got to get either better or just keep working. Um, so I think people are going to be stoked to hear you talking about this and, you know, how you're just moving forward and you're doing it and you're doing it and you're kind of, you know, just going with it. Um, yeah, that's awesome, man. Um, I hear my puppy barking in the background. So I think that <laughs> is our time to cut it off. Scott, this has been dope. Um, can you let people know, are you on Instagram? Do you do social media or any of that kind of stuff? I do. I'm on Instagram. I God, if I can remember my, uh, I think it's Scott S. O'Connor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and certainly, uh, yeah, the book is out from counterpoint, uh, this month, so they can check that out, but yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for taking yeah. the time. And, um, I always ask at the end of the episode, uh, what's your bookstore? Where, where are you, where are you buying books at? Uh, I go between uh, Romans, which is in Pasadena here, which is kind of close to where I live, and uh, and Skylight Books in Los Feliz in LA, which was kind of my. That was really one quick little anecdote about encouragement. Um, there was a there was someone who worked at Skylight back in the day who I would talk to as a reader when I went in, and uh, we talked about writing, and I think I'd even showed him some of the things I was writing. And at one point, I said, if I were to write something and publish it myself, would would you carry it? Uh, because they had a zine rack. Yeah. Uh, and he said, I will. And that was, that was kind of all it took for me to then write the novella. I thought at least it'll be in this one bookstore that I love. And it was, um, yeah. so that was, I, mean, the- I don't know if you know, green apple books here in San mm-hmm. Francisco. Absolutely. They, they were, they were the ones who put, dude, I brought, I brought that book to the bookseller, my novella. He looked at it. He bought three copies, put it on the shelf right when you walk into the store. And to this day, I'm forever grateful to those people. Yeah, and you can live off that for a while. Not the money, of course, but no, you can no, live no, off the, the encouragement. 17,000 photos of my of every single mm-hmm. angle of my book. You know, and then, you know, I, yeah, it's just, it's unbelievable. Scott, thanks so much, man. Thank you. All right. Enjoy the rest of the day, dude. Thanks. You too. Later.